Morning, everyone. Let's pray together. Father, as we sang earlier, cause your word to come alive in us. Open our eyes and open our hearts, I pray, to hear from you. We really are desperate to hear from you this morning, and so I pray that you will speak and that we would clearly hear and obey. It's for Jesus' sake that we ask. Amen. What does Jesus Christ have in common with Bernie Sanders? I'm 10 seconds in, and I see some of you fleeing to the doors already. Don't, everybody take a breath. We're not about to get weird this morning. Let me just set the background. Last year, the Washington Post ran a news article that looked at the record-breaking crowds that Senator Sanders seemed to be bringing out to all of his political rallies. The article cites huge numbers, 8,000 people in Dallas, 10,000 in Madison, Wisconsin, 15,000 in Seattle, 28,000 people in Portland and Los Angeles. I'm sure you've seen the, the news coverage. It's pretty wild. And the truth of the matter is, it's, it's not just Senator Sanders. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz, they're all drawing these, these massive, massive crowds. It's, it's really something this year. What's also interesting to me are the high praises and the accolades that these large crowds offer up to their aspiring leaders. I mean, the praises are no less grandiose than the, the size of the crowds themselves. We hear things like, we can build a movement around so-and-so. This person will fight for us. This one is going to make us great again. This one is our only hope. High praises, I'd say. Well, a couple of thousand years ago, another leader, a king in fact, drew crowds and praises that would dwarf them all. All without super PACs, mind you, and the power of social media marketing. Who is the king? Jesus. The event? Well, the event is what we commonly refer to as Palm Sunday. A story, frankly, that's pretty familiar to us and seems, at least on the surface, pretty straightforward. But is it? Is the story of Palm Sunday really as straightforward as it appears, or is there there's something else happening under the surface? Why were the crowds really there on that day? What was it about Jesus that was getting them so amped up? Was he really worthy of the praise and the accolades that they gave him that day? Is he worthy of ours? What does a 2,000-year-old coronation of a Jewish king have to do with us anyway? Those are the questions that we bring to God's word this morning. And so while it may feel like we've turned back time a bit, we actually come to Palm Sunday now in our series in the Gospel of John. So why don't you meet me there? John's Gospel, chapter 12. If uh, you don't have a Bible and you want to use a pew Bible that's in front of you, you can turn to page 898, page 898. John 12, we're looking this morning at verses 9 to 19. 
John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let me read it. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, to feel the full weight of what's happening here on Palm Sunday, we really need to step back into a bigger story. Let me tell it to you. There once was a nation whose king was God himself. The king chose these people as his very own. He loved them. He delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. He gave them a home, leading them through the wilderness, and even gave them provision and a means by which to live in proper relationship with him. But one day, the people rejected God as their king. Instead, they wanted a human king, like all the other nations. And while the Lord warned them the devastation that that would bring, they insisted, and so God acquiesced to their request. And so began a long line of ordinary, disappointing kings in the nation of Israel. Few were faithful to lead the people in obedience to God. Most, though, were wicked, serving only their own purposes and disobeying the Lord. But none were perfect. None were extraordinary. And yet... In his faithfulness through it all, God foretold of a day when a truly extraordinary king would come. This extraordinary extraordinary king would come and would establish an eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness. He would come and be a blessing to all the nations. He would gather all of God's people in. This king, the Messiah, was the single most concentrated point of hope for God's people in all of their history. And God promised one day he would come. And what a day that would be. That is the full force of what is happening here on Palm Sunday. After hundreds of years of struggle, oppression by enemy nations, exiles, generation after generation anticipating the king might come. Might it be this year or this decade? Might he come in my generation? He's come. The king has come. 
And so you can imagine they had a lot of reasons to praise him that day. I want to look at three. His power, his majesty, and his salvation. First, his power. The crowds praised the king for his power. We see it in verse 9. You might look down at it again. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. A few weeks ago, if you were here, Pastor Nick took us through that wonderful passage in John's Gospel where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It was actually his final public miracle, and uh, did he ever save the best for last? Because Lazarus was a walking testimony to the power of this king. If you've ever seen those trucks that go up and down 224, they're billboard trucks, they just drive up and down the street, back and forth, back and forth. It's kind of like what Lazarus is doing here in Bethany. He is advertising the power of the king, and so these crowds, we've got to see this. This is the king's handiwork. So they went for themselves to see just how powerful this king was, and they were convinced so convinced that John tells us in verse 10 that many of them went away believing. Now this is important. This is like the prelude to Palm Sunday. And it's important because it is building all of this expectation as to how the king was going to exercise that kind of power next. He was about to come to the city after all. And remember the Jews at this time were living under the oppressive boot of the Roman Empire. So they were facing all kinds of social and political challenges. They were not the kingdom that they had once been. They were not the global superpower. So they couldn't muster a revolt against the powerful, mighty Roman Empire. But with a king like that, a king that could do the things that Jesus did, a king that had power over death, Surely he was going to come and to deliver them from their oppressors. So they praised him for his power. Another reason, though, that they praised him was because of his anticipated majesty. They praised the king for his majesty. Verse 12 paints an amazing, amazing picture. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. Notice again there in verse 12, the large crowd. Second time we've seen that phrase, a large crowd. Just how many people are we talking about here? Jewish historians report that the feast that everyone was coming for would build the city population up to as many as two and a half million people. Million. So just... Picture the scene for a minute. The city is literally bursting at the seams with people, bursting. And then a whisper The king is coming. And that whisper soon turns into a roar of praise. Tens of thousands of people, if not more, pour out of the eastern gate of the city to give the king the majestic and royal welcome that he deserves. As they were going to meet him, you have this huge crowd coming from the city, and then you have this huge crowd coming to the city, these two tsunamis of people. I have to imagine that some of them were thinking about the majesty of the kings of old. Maybe they were thinking about 
David's triumphal entry into the city with the ark of God. Maybe some of them were thinking about Solomon and all of his wealth and splendor. Man, in those days, we were the talk of the town. They knew that the Messiah would be even more majestic than both of them combined. What a kingdom he would soon establish. He was coming to make Israel great again. So they rolled out the proverbial red carpet and praised him for his majesty. There's a third reason, a third reason that they praised him that day. They also praised this king for his salvation. You see, one of the things that the Messiah was destined to do was to deliver his people from their enemies, to save them, to establish a kingdom of peace. So again, in verse 13, they take these palm branches. They go out to meet him, and what they say is telling. They cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Here they call him the king, and where in other places Jesus does not allow that coronation to happen, here he does. Almost every year on Palm Sunday, you know this, we parade our kiddos in here, they wave palm branches, it's adorable, I have my camera out just like you. But the palm is incredibly symbolic in terms of the type of salvation that these people were expecting because you see about a hundred years before Jesus rolled into Jerusalem a man called Judas Maccabeus had just served as a national liberator he, he drove out foreign forces from the city and when he returned to the city guess how he was welcomed palm branches he was a national liberator welcomed home victory the palm actually was also imprinted on the coins of the Maccabean revolt during those days. And so basically the palm had become a, a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Then we've got these cries of Hosanna. What's that all about, Hosanna? It's basically a word that they would have come to understand to mean save now, save us now. Basically they're saying the day of deliverance is here. We are on the threshold of salvation. The king has come. Salvation is sure, and it's here. You can really feel the swell, can't you, of political and social expectations. The Jews are living under the authoritative boot of Rome. They are not the nation they had once been, so they are clamoring. They are starving to be saved. And, of course, that's about to happen because the king had come. Surely he was coming to bring an end to all of this Roman tyranny. Surely he was coming to establish a kingdom once again that they would be the envy of all the nations. And so what we have here in this scene in John 12 is a frenzied crowd filled to the brim with nationalistic expectations. And so they're praising him for his power for his majesty, for his salvation. And then Jesus does something. He does something remarkable. This is no accident the way that John constructs the text. Verse 14, look at it. After all of this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What? A donkey? What is he doing? 
The response is that the disciples is just telling, isn't it? Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things. This is John's commentary now. This is not the crowd figuring this out. He's explaining to us. They didn't understand what was going on. The crowds were no better. Verse 18 tells us that, that they were really only there because they had heard about what? The sign. This was a group of self-interested thrill seekers. What's he going to do next? And the Pharisees, well, they're just concerned that their religious empire was about to crumble. So, confusion, curiosity at best, concern. The only person in this whole narrative who is totally dialed in is the king. It's Jesus, because when he sits down on that donkey, he is forcing a messianic reinterpretation on them, totally turning the paradigm upside down and inside out. In doing this, he basically says, you have it right and you have it wrong. You have it right in that I am a king. I receive that. But I'm not the kind of king that you think I am. I'm a different kind of king. I'm no ordinary king. I am an extraordinary king. And this, I think, is what John is getting at in this passage. Jesus is an extraordinary king worthy of extraordinary praise. He is different. He's extraordinary. And it's all of his extraordinary differences that make him so exceptionally praiseworthy. So we might tease that out a little bit in relationship to the original, maybe ordinary reasons that the crowd praised. His power, his majesty, and his salvation. Let's, let's look again. We should praise the king not for his ordinary power for his extraordinary power. Jesus certainly is a powerful king. We've, we've seen that over and over again as we've studied the Gospel of John. But Jesus was not coming into Jerusalem to exercise some destructive power against Rome. He wasn't marching in on a war horse. He was coming to surrender, to suffer. He was coming to die. Some of you might have seen in the news this week some really powerful and destructive storms that are ripping through some of the southern states of the country, Oklahoma and Alabama. And these storms in particular have produced dozens and dozens of devastating tornadoes, arguably one of the most powerful forces in all of nature. The, the wind forces were clocked at over 100 miles per hour. Properties are laid to waste. People are dying. Jesus controls the weather. This king could have, in a word, a word, wiped out all of his enemies. He could have called down an army of angels to come to his side, but he didn't. In fact, he stayed as he hung on a cross, and the most powerful being in all the universe died. And then, Philippians 2 tells us, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. You see, the king had not come to exercise destructive power on Israel's enemies. He came to, to conquer the greater enemies, the enemies of sin and death and selfishness. And he won that victory through the foolishness and the weakness 
of a cross. That is not ordinary power. That is extraordinary power. Also, his majesty. We should praise him for his extraordinary majesty. He's no ordinary king. This is the king who left all the glories of heaven to come to the dust of the earth. This is the king who on his coronation rode in on a donkey's colt, not even an adult donkey, a donkey's colt. Extraordinary. Contrast that with what happened in the late 70s in the capital of what was then the Central African Empire. The world press had gathered to watch the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokasa I. This was quite a sight to behold. The trumpets were blowing, the, the drums were rolling. Bokasa's favorite wife came floating down the royal red carpet in a $74,000 gown. The king himself wore a robe that weighed in at over 30 pounds and it was adorned with over 700,000 strung pearls. When he finally made his way down the royal carpet, he sat down on his throne that was valued at two and a half million dollars. This is the late 70s. But the truth is, Bokasa was just another disappointing, less than ordinary ruler. In fact, his reign only lasted a couple of years, and he, he might be most known infamously for atrocities against his people, such as the execution of a couple of hundred students who complained about the cost of their school uniforms. Jesus is no ordinary majesty. Jesus is gentle, humble, and he's extraordinarily majestic. Tim Keller says it this way, on one hand, you have strong indications of the majesty of the king. Look, the whole world has gone after him. But on the other hand, you have the gentleness of the king. Now, these two things are brought together, united in the same person, and that is what makes him so great. Extraordinary majesty. And lastly... We should praise Jesus for his extraordinary salvation. The king had come to the city to save his people, to be sure. But not in the way that everyone expected. You see, most kingdoms would do anything to protect their king. For example, at the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, Winston Churchill had said that he wanted to support the effort and watch uh, from a battleship nearby. When the king heard of this, he also said, well, then it's also my duty to come and to watch, which would put him in harm's way. Well, even though Churchill really wanted to be there in the English Channel, he would never put the king at risk. And so he backed down. Well, later on in the week after Palm Sunday, we have just the opposite happening. Because as soon as the people realized that Jesus was not going to fulfill salvation in the way that they thought he would, their chance of praise turned to prosecution. Kill him, they would say. Bring out the criminal instead. Kill this one. And so, in a twist, this king would die for his people. 
does that relate to salvation? It's a great question. And to answer it, we need to, to look at an important aspect of Palm Sunday. And that's the feast that everyone was coming together for. The reason the city was bursting at the seams. The reason everyone was so excited is it was Passover. This was the celebration of how God delivered his people from Egypt, right? You remember the story in the book of Exodus. And he saved them, how? By the blood of the lamb. So at Passover, they sacrificed lambs, lots of them. One historian reports around this time in history, as many as 250,000 lambs being sacrificed. A quarter of a million. That's a lot of lambs. But this Passover was much different. This Passover, a different kind of lamb would die. A lamb that was extraordinary. A lamb that was also the king. Do you see? The lamb is the king. The king is the lamb, and this king saves, not from the tyranny of Rome, but the tyranny of sin. This king saves not in order to establish another earthly kingdom that will come and go, but to establish an eternal kingdom. This king comes not to offer temporary peace, but to offer eternal peace with God himself, to reconcile God and his people together. This king would die not just for the sins of one nation, but for the sins of every nation. The Pharisees had no idea how profound their statement was. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And the reason is because this king would go after the world. And by sacrificing himself for his people, provide extraordinary salvation. With the weight and the joy of Palm Sunday, sitting on our chest, I think it's important that we ask, how can we apply a passage like this? I'll mention a handful, just briefly. First, we should know Jesus as he is, not as we wish him to be. We should know him as he is, not as we wish him to be. If we're honest, we, we all, all of us, have preconceptions about who Jesus is. And instead of kind of casting our molds onto him, the better approach, rather, is to listen to him and receive his self-revelation about himself. And honestly, this can get harder and harder the longer you're a Christian. And yet, I think one of the things this passage tells us is that we ought to not know Jesus based on our preconceived notion of him, but who he actually is. Second, we have to guard against following Jesus for the purpose of self-interest. So much of the praise that was offered up that day on Palm Sunday was really offered out of self-interest. What's he going to do for me? And while I have to guess that most of us would not explicitly say that we are serving and following Jesus out of self-interest, it's interesting the way in which we respond when something doesn't go our way in our life. When God doesn't give us something that we think we deserve. Lord, aren't you looking out for me? Aren't you supposed to be taking care of my business? And yet, the caution is we're not to follow Jesus out of self-interest. We're to follow him because he's worthy, period. Next, thirdly, we should remember to celebrate Jesus as king, not a pop culture celebrity. 
I say this because in some circles, it's, it's much more palatable to celebrate Jesus as kind of a cool, peace-loving, pop culture icon than Lord. But we've got to remember, Jesus is king, which means he's also Lord. He's the one in charge of my life. And when you bristle at his word or bristle at that idea as him being Lord, you have to remember, if he's not your Lord, he's not your king either. And so while it may be more palatable to think of Jesus as some pop culture ornament to our life's mission, that is not who he is. He's an extraordinary king. Fourth, we should gladly bear witness about Jesus to the world around us based on this passage. We see it secondarily, but we see it in places like the life of Lazarus, the witness of the crowd, and granted, most of those in the crowd would have missed the deeper issue at hand. It is a good reminder for us that we have an extraordinary king, and what we ought to do is recognize him both for who he is and be eager to bear witness about his extraordinary power, his extraordinary majesty, and his extraordinary salvation. Fifth, we should anticipate resistance to Jesus and his rule as king. Listen, as we live in this world, as we bear witness about Jesus and his gospel, not everybody's going to be into that. Or us, for that matter. We see the Pharisees in this passage ramping up against Jesus and his followers, perhaps most clearly in Lazarus. They want him dead. And while culturally we might be a step or two away from death threats, we we really need to anticipate a measure of resistance to the gospel. Next, and in that, we needn't fear a lot of the political and cultural uncertainty of the day. This passage that John cites from Zechariah 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. If we had time, we'd go back. Go read it this week, the wonders and the treasures in Zechariah 9. But they describe a king of peace. Fear not. There is so much uncertainty in the world today, but ours, friends, is the king who came on his coronation riding on a donkey, an animal of peace a king that we know as the prince of peace. And so we needn't fear. We needn't fear. Next, we should be incredibly encouraged by Jesus' unwavering commitment to his mission. You think about that. It would have been really easy for Jesus to have gotten caught up in all the political social frenzy of the day. But as we saw earlier, he was the only one that was really dialed in, which tells us that he is infinitely more committed to us than we are to him. And it's his commitment to us that really produces our commitment to him in the first place. And I don't know about you, but the week that I have had, that is really good news. That is incredibly encouraging. Next, I I think this passage makes very clear that we ought to trust in this king and trust in the salvation that he provides. And it might go without saying, but We need to remember that Jesus, through his atoning death and his powerful resurrection, provides the salvation that we really need. Our deepest need, our separation from God because of our sin and rebellion against him, is resolved because of the resolve of the king. And and furthermore, he shows us through the events of Palm Sunday that he's not only a praiseworthy king, he's a trustworthy king. He's not some self-interested leader. He's a king who died for his people. He's gentle and accessible and humble. This is a type of king that we ought to not only worship, but that we ought to trust. 
And finally, final point of application is simply that we should regularly engage in authentic praise to our king. Persistent praise that lasts infinitely longer than the week that it lasted among this crowd. We should praise him. And, and if praise is very simply the joyful and public declaration of who God is and what he's done, then we got all kinds of ways we can praise him. And in all kinds of contexts, we can praise him in our conversations. We can praise him in our prayers. We can praise him corporately, which we'll do here in just a minute. We should praise him because he really is an extraordinary king. You know what? No matter who becomes the next president of the United States, no matter how big the crowds get, no matter how loud they become or how big the accolades are, I'll tell you one thing for sure. They will inevitably let us down. They will. They will inevitably descend to the status of just another ordinary leader. So will they, will they really give us a future we can believe in? Will they really fight for us in the way that we so desperately need? Are they really our only hope? No. No, friends, those kinds of extraordinary praises belong to only one person. Only one king, a king who's extraordinarily powerful and majestic, a king who offers an extraordinary salvation and worthy of extraordinary praise. Praise, interestingly, that the Apostle John goes on later in his life to write about. Listen to this as we close from Revelation 7. Listen actively. This is John writing. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The lamb is the king. The king is the lamb. And friends, someday we will join in this great chorus, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And in the meantime, may we lift our voices here in this place in extraordinary praise of our extraordinary king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will allow our hearts to overflow with authentic and extraordinary praise to your son this morning. Not praise that is rooted in pretension or preconceived notions about who he is, but who he actually is and what he has actually done. He is the king who is also the lamb who brings salvation to us. May we lift our voices and our hearts and our lives in a thunderous praise to our great and extraordinary King. We pray in his name. Amen. Stand and sing, friends. <laughs>